Um, so this session, Compassion Foundation for Whole Person Care. Um, right, so my name is Richard Vincent. Um, I've been mostly a cardiologist all through life in the southern part of a very small land called England, just off Europe. <laughs> I've been an academic cardiologist and been involved through the Lord's Grace in building a medical school and a postgraduate medical school and a research centre and, and that's been professional life. Um, I have not been a missionary until lately. Uh, I joined a group, see at the bottom, called Prime. Uh, Prime, I'll tell you about in two slides, uh, is the group that I'm with here to enjoy this conference and a pre- and post-conference session as well. Prime is a medical education charity, Christian-based very firmly, uh, which started in England uh, and to our surprise, because we never actually planned to do it, it was a postgraduate school for doctors in the UK, we have found ourselves going further and further out into the world on short-term educational missions. So education is what it's about as a Christian person, as a Christian healthcare. Excuse me, did you need IT help? No, I think we're fine. <laughs> I, I think so. It wasn't working. Oh, oh, I see. No, I wasn't just quite sure. No, um, I was probably joking, but that was... <laughs> you see, in the UK, nobody would have noticed. But <laughs> Your country is so much better at being efficient that... Uh, well, there we are. Uh, so, uh, yes, the educational mission has spread uh, far and wide across the world by invitation. We go to teach, uh, essentially, uh, how Jesus can affect medical practice in the settings that the people invite us to go and see. Oh, you're okay, are you? Yeah, okay. Is there anything I can do to help? No? Um, <laughs> And so we have gone uh, around in, in the last uh, 10 years uh, to a few places, but in the last several years to many more places. So in 19, 2013, rather, we, we, went, we delivered 59 programs uh, around the globe uh, in over 34 countries. Uh, we've got about 200 tutors, mostly in the UK, but increasingly based abroad with partners that we work there. And you can see the numbers. We work for quite a lot of days. I reach quite a lot of people in that time. And that is all to do with Jesus at the centre of healthcare and restoring his place there and encouraging our brothers and sisters in that way and also reaching out to others in the community, in the medical community, in the nursing community, etc., uh, to bring Jesus into their world uh, so that they can uh, live through him in their work as well. So the objectives, all good educational starts with objectives, you get bored of the objectives, you know. <laughs> Some people do. Um, so what we're going to do uh, in the next hour is to look at the biblical foundation for whole person medicine. Now, the first bit of the talk is, in a sense, quite theoretical, uh, but it is fundamental to understanding, in my view, what whole person medicine is about with a Christian perspective. Then we're going to look at important things about increasing or diminishing the compassion that we show for the patients that we treat. And this is, this is patient treatment, uh, patient consultation level uh, of discussion, really. Uh, we certainly work with communities and systems, uh, but we're interested in the, the dynamics of the healthcare professional and the patient whom we see. And then the important 
point at the end, what can we learn then? What can we take away that will help us to do that, to deliver medical care with greater compassion, which draws on the presence and the power of Christ? Many of these things will be very familiar to you, so some of them are just for refreshment, but also it's introducing you, if you will, to, to the way we look at it and the way we present it around the world. If you happen to want to know more about Prime, there are some leaflets things there over on the table, which allows you to get on the website, and we're all over the place on Facebook and Twitter, and there's that as well. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, that is, in creation. Um, it's a very good place to start. Whole persons, of course, were created in the finality of God's creation in this world. Now, this is a, a person. I hope that's all right. Um, it's gender neutral. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and we were... As we know, the pinnacle of God's creation in his image. And that in itself is startling the more you think about it, isn't it? But we are inclined to think when we ponder about what, what is a person? What are we characters walking around? Uh, and there is a uh, familiarity with thinking of that in terms of body, mind and spirit. Now... I think all at once, that's not quite a biblical definition. We'll see how that goes in a moment. But it is a way of thinking about different aspects of us as people. We are different things in one place. Except for the grandchildren who don't seem to be in any place at all. <laughs> I think the part, of the, the part of our story that's the hardest in a way to categorise is what we mean by spirit in that triad. What does that mean? So I spent a little while looking at the Bible to see how, how the Bible describes, if you like, the non-material parts of man. Mind is quite interesting, isn't it? It exists physico-chemically in neurons, staggering amount of neurons, staggering amount of connections between them, staggering creation we are part of. But there's also something about emotional and cognitive thinking which spills into the spirit and some people, of course, will use the term psycho-spiritual to talk about that part of us that is, if you like, immaterial. And there are several words in Scripture which seem to impinge on that idea. One, of course, is very familiar, is spirit, which mostly means the energising force. But an energy with personality, with persons that are identifiable. And then there's the question of a soul. These are terms which are somewhat fluid in scripture anyway. They don't always mean quite the same thing. Is a being alive person. Again, there's an emphasis on person, possessing life, energy. And if you see my three middle grandchildren, you'll know what possessing life and energy is about. In the New Testament, there are several references, but not all, to life that continues after physical death. And we all are, of course, uh, aware of that point of great importance that our physical life is not the end of our life. And then there's heart, which I'm particularly fond of, because I'm a cardiologist. <laughs> but I'm also very fond of it because it is really central, and it's interesting that in the New Testament uh, there is a sense that it best describes person, 
personhood. What is it that we're dealing with when we deal with each other and ourselves as persons? And it's got the sense of the governing centre, the heart of the matter. It's a common parlance, isn't it? We can have emotional attributes to it. We're heavy-hearted, light-hearted, whatever. And it is seemingly right at the core of our being. And for that way, one of our phrases in Prime is restoring the heart of healthcare, that which encompasses the real person, the person made in God's image, the person who will be accountable to him, loved by him now. But of course, all that's mixed up, like that mosaic, that Roman mosaic. All of those things intertwine. It's not as straightforward as that. If I were to wander over, and I won't, if that's all right, and tread on this nice lady's toe, she would probably say, Ow! <laughs> And, sorry, um, <laughs> did, did you want to hear? I wasn't sure. Um, she would probably say, ow, and, and, and her foot would hurt. But I think her, her mind would also react. Maybe her right arm would also react. <laughs> but there will be a process. And possibly, uh, because we're both uh, probably members of the household of faith, she'd wonder, what does this mean? <laughs> but probably only when she's feeling better and we're all over it. But we can't be segregated, really. And one of the cultural things we're in the midst of, that we'll refer to a bit more later, is we like to divide things up. One of the things that medicine science does is get to smaller and smaller pieces to try and understand it, which is actually quite interesting. You take all the bits apart uh, so you know what it is. What can happen, of course, is that having taken all the bits apart, you haven't got the whole to look at and see what it is. So we're the whole, this here. And it's interesting, isn't it, when we're instructed, um, invited, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Which terms seem to encompass the whole person? And that, of course, is indeed how we are to love our Father in Heaven and His Son and Holy Spirit. So we have persons that seems to be a sort of biblical basis uh, for personhood, if you will, um, made in God's image, in God's image. From the Godhead point of view, we have one God. We join uh, with all those adherent to the Old Testament in that their God is one. But then, uniquely to our own faith, we also recognise that there is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father uh, who form the Godhead. And the triad, I think, is fascinating, isn't it? The threesome of things that travels through the universe. And in that Godhead of three persons, existing well before creation, we see the model of relationships. We see the model of relationships where there's complete understanding, there's complete love, there's complete unity. And that's a model of personal relationships. And that stands there as a, an index and incredibly fundamental pre-creation example, illustration, reality uh, of communication and relationships. And so we, though we are one, split in three if you like, have the same created requirement and the same phenomenon that is absolutely critical. 
relationships. Relationships amongst, above everything else in this world are actually far more important than any other structure. So we relate to God, we relate to each other, um, and we relate to the world. We have responsibility to the world as a created place of incredible interest to each other, any other person walking on this created earth, and to God. And we know very well, do we not? We know very well that we fractured that relationship. Genesis 3 is probably the most depressing piece of writing in the entire universe. Because that connection, that beauty of relationship with God that we had, we fractured. And not surprisingly, everything else has got fractured too. At least that's the way I look at it. And I think that's the way it's recorded and we find. So our relationships with each other are fractured. I mean, we just so live in a world where that's true all the time, that it doesn't seem abnormal. But it's wrong. It's abnormal in the sense that that wasn't the perfection God designed. And conflicts between people rage, do they not? at every level across the world. And we're ill at ease with our creation. We're trying to get it right by not poisoning it. But also, I think, we have inside us fractioned people as well. That was, would be the way I looked at it. We talked about the three persons, the body, mind and spirit, but it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, perhaps if you think about it, they, there are disconnects between those as well. Even if you take the Pauline comment, I know what I should do, but I somehow don't do it. Now, that's a disconnect. How does that happen? You know, half of me wants to do something, and the other half says, no thanks. That's not connected. And, I, you know, if you look at the data, something like 70 to 74% of illness is behavioural-related. And I bet you any money you like that all the people, including us, who are not keeping to the best behaviour know exactly that it's wrong. I don't think you have to tell anybody who's drinking in excess, who's terribly overeating, who's whatever, that, you know, it's not a good idea. That's not news. The interesting thing is that knowledge itself is not enough to make it work. And that, I think, is because we're disconnected inside. There's a disconnect that's come out of this fractionation. And part of our dealing with illness is actually focused on reconnecting by God's love. And part of healing is reconnecting what goes on. We know very well that a lot of symptoms are generated not by the physical cause of something, chest pain, I happen to know a bit about that. Um, there was a, an interesting guy I met here last year called Ty Hopkins. Works in, uh, in prison medicine uh, and was seeing for a, pa- a patient for a long time. A patient had chest pain, bad chest pain, limiting chest pain. And, as commonly happens, he'd had every investigation under the sun. Or you can possibly think of invasive and non-invasive, and there was very little to show. Ty said to him one day, I'm sure prompted by God's spirit, I think your problem is guilt. Now that's a brave thing to say to some folks. And maybe if you were in a less safe environment, (laughs) in one sense, um, you might not say that. But do you know what the chap said? He said, you're right. That's the problem. And so they went through a question of how that guilt could be addressed. 
and treated and the chest pain faded away. And actually that's not uncommon because lots of us see lots of people who are coming with physical symptoms where there's something far deeper inside. And even when it's an obvious thing, like myocardial infarction, well the incidence of those goes up if there's hidden anger. And there are lots of other things about those relationships. So we're fractured inside and our medical treatment is to try to bring that healing and God's healing is great. So here we have the broken man. That's us, damaged, imperfect. And that's us and that's our patients. Whether we meet them in Africa, whether we meet them in Colorado, whether we meet them down the road from my house in southern England. The great news is that though that's how we are, that, of course, is the state in which we are loved by Jesus. Now, that is, that is big news, isn't it? I know you know that, but sometimes it's nice just to stop off and realise that. That is how he loves us, not when we're doing better, not when we've already got ourselves right, but actually in the state we are, whatever we are. And acceptance like that by Christ is, I think, one of the most beautiful things when it's mirrored in his people accepting others no matter what state they're in. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Even in sort of medicine, we have, you know, if, if you're in the if an, an ER situation at home in the UK, the, the person who's taking a drug every day is for the 16th time, the alcoholic is in yet for the third night, they're going to be probably put somewhere else and left. They're not accepted as anybody else. The elderly patient who's confused on a trolley, you know, she's put to one side because you really don't quite want to so much as you do the young person with a recent injury. Now, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think you know the sense in which that happens. So let's go to Jerusalem. Um, there's Jerusalem, not when Jesus met it, but it's not that much different. <laughs> People have been to Jerusalem recently. It's grown a bit since then. Uh, but that from the Mount of Olives just takes me back to how did Jesus look at this collection of people in the city uh, that he loved to be in and was sent to to redeem. You know, Jerusalem was a pretty busy place. Uh, it was highly commercial. Commercialism was rampant. Money really mattered, both the Jewish community and the Roman community. There were pagans... There were people of sorceries and all sorts of alternative religions. And the Romans had... Do you know, I didn't know how many Roman gods there were until I had a look the other day. Well, not at them, but, you know. Um, <laughs> do you know there are 20 gods just beginning with A? And if you go through the alphabet, you get hundreds. So polytheism was rampant as well. Huge divide between rich and poor, the separation a very law-driven religion in much of the town where the poor people, I'm told, also had a very high sense of guilt because they could never keep the law. So there was all sorts of mixtures. And frankly, those components are not missing from our own society, are they? And how did Jesus look? Well, we know how Jesus looked. He, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, the people, he wept over it. That is powerful. To see all that going on, the suffering that was built in, that was obvious and not obvious, and the deviation from his 
way and love of righteousness and peace caused him to cry. And I think we do that too. Sometimes, don't we? We look at people or a situation and crying is the right response. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And not uncommonly, almost wherever we're practising, we are dealing with people who in some way are harassed or helpless. That's how it is. And therefore, obviously, and this is not news, compassion is required of us in that setting. Compassion should be, and almost surely is, an instinctive response to that. Compassion, because they were harassed and helpless. That's how we go. Okay, so I'm going to uh, emphasise that, but I'm going to get a little bit of help from you. How did Jesus' compassion show itself in his ministry to the sick? That's enough of me talking. So what we'll do, now I don't know if you like doing this or not, you could talk to each other in pairs, or you could sit silently and think, or you could have a ball, or pop out and get some water. But for a couple of minutes, give some thought to that, if you would. How did it show itself? What does compassion look like? Because actually, that's what we're aiming to get toward today. How is it going to seem? How is it going to look? How can we make it uh, more apparent? How can it be more apparent in us? So how did it look? From what you, I'm sure, in this audience know well about Jesus' life and ministry. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. That will save you listening to me for a while uh, and give the old lungs of yours a bit more space to move. about a couple of minutes. Very good. Let's, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for a few and then, um, and then I'm going to put up a little list and you can see whether uh, I've forgotten any, in which case please tell me afterwards and we'll add them. Uh, and maybe there are some there you haven't thought of as well. So anybody want to say? 
was unbiased. Unbiased. Yeah, completely equal across. Anybody was welcome. Fantastically good. That's a that's an unusual thing in forms. That's the only one? No? Touch them. Laid hands on them, touch them. Touch them, yes. And that's uh, touch is great, isn't it, in terms of healing, if your culture will allow that. Uh, it has an effect that is surprising, I think. Non judgmental. Yeah. This acceptance that comes out both in unbiased and uh, is is really a mark of folks with love and compassion. He walked alongside them. He walked alongside them. Wept alongside them. Yes. Absolutely. Isn't that... I mean, we're not encouraged to do that very much, are we? Any, you know, do, you, do you get around to crying with your patients much? That's a semi-serious question. I've cried with relatives sometimes. Um, now, you're not supposed to do that, are you? You look terribly worried. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but it's a very important point. It's quite interesting, actually. Is and not for discussion for time now, but how vulnerable should we appear? We had a little pre-conference uh, session with some very senior medical teachers before we started here, and we listed all the qualities they felt that should be present in a, a, a doctor practicing under God's rule. And one of those qualities was vulnerability. We are those same damaged people. And how that plays out in our relationships with patients is actually very interesting. And I think it is, it is an interesting question as to uh, how distant you make yourself, how or not you cry with them sometimes. Take one more and then we'll have a look. Yes, the whole of them was dealt with. Um, and that is very interesting if you take the healing miracles almost everyone will show a dimension which includes body, mind, spirit and social. It's very interesting. Well, there we are. There are a few things. The touching, indeed, you mentioned. Um, I, I think I haven't got impartial. The projector might break, but there you go. Um, excludes no one. So that, that's the impartiality and the uh, non-bias. Teaches through healing. So his teaching goes alongside, etc. I'm assuming these PowerPoints are going to be available for download, so don't worry if you want to um, look up and not write down. The Lord is gracious, righteous and full of compassion. And those two don't clash, do they? It's not one or the other. It's the righteousness and compassion that's held. Okay, time moves on. So, moving on, how has this Jesus example teaching uh, played out, as it were, through the years? And how has that come to be either the norm or not the norm in our medical practice across the world? That's a big statement. Let me just take you to here. Here is Italy, uh, a hospital in Scala in Italy in 1450. And this was still the time, or was the time, when the church and healing were totally intertwined. And so this is a hospital run by a group of very faithful to God people, uh, so that the compassion was given from that perspective, and holistic care was the norm. Uh, this uh, clinical assistant taking, as it were, the same posture as Jesus, washing the feet of a beggar who's come in. The hospital served the poor, uh, 
beggars, pilgrims, people who are outcasts. And this person who's been robbed uh, is being treated with compassion. We could spend some time looking at things like eyeline and what everybody's doing else to avoid looking at his vulnerable self. And so there was compassion built in with faith and the then whatever science of medicine was around, which was growing even then. But that's not how it is in various places now. So one of the things that we're actually going to go down the route of now is what's happened? What, what is it that's limiting compassion being shown? Um, we'll explore that and then we'll build up to the end to talk about how can we regrow it and restore it. So what reduces our compassion? I'm going to give you a couple of, a couple of slants on that and then we'll just have another uh, time so that we can uh, find a few ideas also from ourselves. There are quite a lot of things um, and this isn't comprehensive but it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask. So one of them is something that happened in the uh, late 1600s in the West. The accent, the um, ascent of science and scientific discovery uh, and the way the church was in that particular time um, made the whole thing separate. And this has really travelled through our Western communities a lot and quite powerfully. And you'll know this already. Uh, so on the one hand, science got into medicine or medicine got into science as something you could test and prove and prod and do uh, not quite then but you know evidence-based medicine uh, randomized controlled trials didn't get in until a bit later but the idea was that this was reality reality was what you could test and experiment with and that would take you far and of course it has scientific progress has been remarkable we love it we depend on it but it's not the whole story the other part of the story, the compassion, the faith, the values, science has no intrinsic values. It's whatever values you bring to it that makes it turn into an atom bomb or a nuclear energy plant. But all that was optional value. Values were variable. You could choose them. Nothing was fixed about that. And the two things became very separate and they have indeed travelled through our history for quite some time and it's one of the reasons why compassion is over that side you see the science gets emphasised, um, we all got I think suddenly I got brought up as scientists you know that's the people that do well at university in medical science, you do the science and science is great, so we, we had um, rocket science you know just for a change it wasn't not rocket science, it was, was rocket science <laughs> and, uh, the rocket science and the rocket science in medicine is startling it really is and that is good. However, we've buried God. God is sitting there under a tombstone. If we take just that view, and it's not joined up. And that has profound consequences that actually it's good to ponder on sometimes. That has profound consequences throughout our society which adopts this view. And we teach that view. This is... Um, pretty much how it works in my medical school which um, we have tried to improve on but generally speaking we turn out doctors for whom their curriculum is almost entirely based on the body somatic, you start off with dissection etc um, the psychological, social and spiritual have very tiny segments of the curriculum our medical students if you say you've now got a psychological session on depression amazing, they all get depressed and 
if you can, you try and get a spiritual discussion into the curriculum. And actually, a group of us are beginning to work on how that might really work in the secular society of the UK. So that's also biased the output and obviously the practice of medicine because we've taught folks that science is what it's all about and nothing else much. And that applies to obviously Western hospitals in the developed world. I was in Singapore last year talking about some stuff and it was interesting to meet some of the senior medics from there after one of our prime talks. And one of them said, the trouble with this society is, and let's listen to this word describing a hospital as well as a society, inhumane. Inhumane. In other words, <coughs> to persons. Great science, no persons. Whole person, no. Interestingly, um, Jeremy Hunt uh, is uh, Secretary of State for Health. And uh, the earlier part of the year, I just want you to notice uh, just the bottom uh, paragraph, really. So he's been contacted by patients who've told him medical errors. But the bottom part of that paragraph, by a system where no one took responsibility for sorting out the problem or looking after the person rather than just the body where things had gone wrong. So there's recognition in secular and spiritual societies, as it were, that things have gone wrong because persons are left out. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but we'll move on. You understand the idea that that's one reason why compassion has failed. And it's a big problem. One of my senior nursing colleagues, who's an educationalist, has been given a contract to go around to hospitals for two hours every Friday afternoon to talk about compassion awareness. Interesting. Whether that gets to the heart, I don't know, but at least it gets to the idea that that is a requirement. Now, of course, that's not true across all other societies, and many folks um, in this community and the community here at this conference will be travelling to different parts of the world where compassion is not missing because of that. But there is the worry, isn't there, that the developing countries want to emulate the countries with lots of money and equipment because that's what they see is the way of doing it. That's terrible from the point of view of learning whole person, person care. I talked to the medical dean at Zambia, and his enthusiasm was for an upgraded ITU. And when I said, what about community care? Are you going to be teaching anybody to work in the community? Oh, no. Not at all. Lots of money into the high-power, high-specialist centres in completely unnecessary emphasis. So, of course, in Africa, other things are true uh, in terms of what might get in the way or not get in the way of whole person medicine. Interestingly, uh, obviously there are variation parts, but here's an approach which actually takes, if you look at the bottom, um, relying heavily on spiritual aspects. They consider that a spiritual history is more important than a physical history. Well, we can use that in various ways. Of course, it's not the same. But there are other reasons in the developing countries, aren't there, which can hinder compassion, and that is uh, the very large-scale uh, corruption, uh, which does make a different sort of goal for achievement. It means that if people learn good medicine, they move out of the rural places and go and work where they can get money in private practice. And that's another way 
where the goal of compassionate care is not top of the list. I'm going to tell you about one other thing, which is, is interesting. This is actually to do with the system. So there's the scientific emphasis with the discarding of everything else that matters. And then there is the system, because the system can and does push compassion downwards. It's happening in our National Health Service like you wouldn't believe. Not necessarily deliberately, but because our medical nursing and health professional staff are treated so poorly in management terms that they feel no compassion is given to them. And that's one thing which limits being able to show compassion. Now, uh, just as an interesting point, Philip Zimbardo, uh, as you say, there was at Stanford, and you may or may not have come across this experiment, where he took 20 fine persons from his class. Students, all mates, same level, get on hugely well. And got volunteers, and he split them into two groups, quite randomly, uh, and developed a mock prison environment at the bottom of one of the education blocks. So they made Stanford County Prison. The only rule was, and they were going to run this experiment for about a month and see what happened, the group were prisoners, the other group were the wardens, and those in charge of the prison. And the only rule was that no physical harm should occur to the prisoners by the guards. And when that was said, they all laughed and thought, oh, don't be joking, and these are our mates. However, it progressed, this experiment, and you can see the sort of things that were going on, the, the sorts of things we see uh, in images of treatment in various parts of the conflict world at the moment. Depersonalization, a number, not a name, blinding you so you don't know where you are or what's happening, disorientating, all those things went on. And this got to the mental state of the prisoners. Extraordinarily. And the guards got worse at it. They got more and more vicious at emotional challenge and where they could physical challenge. The thing of standing somewhere like that for hours on end, your head covered, all that sort of stuff. So much so that within a week they had to stop the study because of the damage that it was doing to the prisoners. And all that had happened because the idea had been put in the mind of the guards that you are to regard these prisoners as rubbish. Now, I think that's frightening because what it means is how you think about somebody is going, of course, maybe it's obvious, but it's powerfully obvious here, how you think of somebody will determine entirely how you treat them and how you regard them and how they feel about you. Now, when everybody came out of this, and Philip Zimbardo himself was looking at this going on, and he got so caught into it that they, the external supervisor said, look, you've got to stop this. And he said, oh, no, no, it's fine, for a couple of days. Until the message, yeah, you've got to stop this. It's actually getting terrible. And it took a long time for everybody to recover. And afterwards, they sort of wondered how that could happen. So that means, and it's the underlying reason he did this, was actually to see how it is that communities like Rwanda, you can have neighbours who are fine one day and killing each other the next. And the difference is just the mindset that's been absorbed by one set of people. So I think if our minds are right, then the reverse will happen. 
But compassion can be taught out of people if they're in a system which insists that a worldview is taken or a person view is taken in this damaging sort of way. Well, there we are. Now it's your turn. Have another little chat because, you know, uh, I get very bored listening to myself. Uh, it's really time for you to say something. Um, it's all right, it's only another 20 minutes. Um, the uh, other, other things, what, what else reduces your compassion? How is it harder for you to feel compassionate? There is, or expose, or um, express compassion in a clinical setting. What is it? Give, give, give that a thought for a little while and then we'll come back to chatting.
Okay. I'm going to stop you there. I hope you had a chance also to discuss holiday plans and uh, other things that often go on in sessions like that. I know. <laughs> right. So, other reasons, please, for it being more difficult to be compassionate in your healthcare practice. Okay. Our group, I think, one that I hadn't thought about, but as we were talking through it, it's the the structure of the healthcare system, medical care system itself, which mm. demands all mm. the paperwork and less time to to talk and mm. show compassion. I mean, sure, mm. you can show compassion, but it, mm. the, just the system itself. Mm. How many people would go with that view? Yeah. It is quite, it's a very, very powerful, very, very common view. In our own health service, people are suffering a lot because of that, because everything is tick boxed, done by the time, squash it in, and leaving people no space to be compassionate. Now, one interesting piece of data uh, is that patients themselves will pick up if you're an empathic person very quickly, within the first 30 seconds. And so, in a sense, the idea of conveying that you are interested in them doesn't take long. The idea that you're caring for them is evidenced by all sorts of ways, small ways, that you communicate that care. If it arises out of your heart, it'll travel. It's very interesting. If you've been praying for that person before they came through the door, last night before you went to bed because you know they're coming, whatever, they will know. And that's encouraging. But the system demands, in many places these days, a high throughput, a lot of prescriptive actions, and the funding depends on that. And it's the only way the government can appeal to the population that the health service is working well. I don't think the population believe it, but actually we're all stuck with that. And a good question is what to do. But thank you for that. Any other reason? Somebody didn't put their hands up, so there must be some other reasons that you thought of. I think the system um, for the Christian position is certainly something that can decrease Thank you for that. I think there's a real tension there. I really do, actually, because, um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we are, are keen to show compassion uh, and the opportunity is there all the time and handling that within the system, um, it, it can be an excuse, I quite agree, but I think it also is, it, it is a battle and I think it's something, it's a battle that we ought to enjoin in getting back at the system and I think at some point the system's going to need it back because actually it won't survive in its present form because of the way it's running. 
Uh, and one of the things, as I say, Prime in the UK is trying to do is trying to actually address this with the people who are in charge. Uh, there, there is another, I think, one, one important thing, in, and that is literally fatigue and burnout, um, because that is quite powerful. And a little thing I thought about today was the degree to which we feel responsible for the patient getting better. Now, that may seem a little strange, because uh, what are we supposed to be doing? You know, like, that's our job, getting the patient better. But finally, the healing is God's. And finally, we are bringing the patient to him in our life and prayers, using what tools we have, and praying that those tools will be useful, both diagnostically and therapeutically. I think it can be, because, you know, fo folks... Thank you. No, ten minutes. That's very good. Yeah. That's good. Okay, that's the clock. It agrees. Um, the whole uh, thing about that is... Uh, I've lost my track now. That's a shame. <laughs> what was it? Do you remember? Um, say? Yeah, thank you. Um, our responsibility... We are problem-solving people. I think folks who go to healthcare are very often highly-tuned problem-solvers. And if, if it's anything like my life, you'll find your life is filled not only with, with patients or people who bring you problems. Almost everybody brings you problems. You know, doctors get invited to sit on committees because they do problems. Um, some people don't because they are problems. <laughs> but without doubt, I think where our minds can be set that we should be able to solve this. And there's a subtle difference between it's us who are solving it rather than us uh, and therefore carrying the final weight of the outcome, if you will. Whereas it's us serving the Lord in helping these people as he allows us to with whatever we have to hand. And what is our biggest therapeutic device? What's your best, what's your best bit to offer people in terms of treating them? Hi. You. Quite straightforwardly, you. You will heal a person as they come through the door if they sense you are compassionate and caring and safe. Because one of the things people will bring to most clinical consultations is fear, uncertainty, the possibility of rejection, misunderstanding. And there are bits of people suffering that can be healed simply by being accepting and loving and letting that come out of your heart. And one of my prayers is always that whoever comes to see me, they leave feeling better, being better in some way. That's not my magic. It's because we want them to meet God's compassion. We must press bomb because we have only seven and three quarter minutes. So if we're going to grow... Uh, some compassion. These are, these are some top-of-the-head Vincent ideas, so hard luck. This is how it goes. Look hard at and reflect on. Those words are quite well chosen. I mean, they're chosen for the purpose I want them. Reflection is something our medical students just hate. Um, but looking hard at something and giving it some thought is actually a powerful way of moving forward. Look hard and reflect on your patients. That may sound uh, silly. But actually, really look at them. Ask God to help you see them as they are. Catch the nuance of what they're saying. Notice the depression on top of the, the leprosy, like in this patient. Uh, look and see 
whether they're despairing over what, they're, what it is that they're masking behind, what's behind that facial expression. What's the real fear that this patient has? And how can we find that? Our prayer is during the consultation, maybe, that God will show us where to look for that. Look hard at the communities in which we work, because also those being compassionate communities will help us all to deliver compassion. And there may be ways in which your health fraternity works together that can enhance that for each other and also for those whom you serve. Look at yourself. Now, this is quite interesting. This is very difficult. These are some doctors looking at a patient called Robert Pope who is lying in bed with terminal cancer. And this is how they look to him. Now, frankly, they don't look terribly endearing. <laughs> and if you are feeling sick, ill, frightened, and going to die soon, you feel more like a specimen which is awaiting to go into the pathology pot than you do somebody whom they are actually interested in helping. Now, you can't see yourself <laughs> how you look, but it might be worth just thinking about that. Um, look at other people, see how they look when they're looking at patients. Um, it may or may not be uh, as helpful as you think because you may be distracted. You can easily be distracted because there are 15 people to see in 10 minutes and you know, you're worried about that and there's something else going on and there's anywhere there's somebody in the eye you ought to go and see. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on in your mind and that will come out in your face and your words and will sharply define the lack of compassion. Not that it's not there, it's masked. And that's why we sort of Try to spell out the idea that for that moment that you see a patient, ideally, with God's help, that's the only point in the universe in which you're interested. That's the whole point of this moment, is that person. Hard against the background. Well, what about what you say? My goodness, we do say some daft things. I mean, if you go around, I've got a, students, a set of students doing a special study module to listen to what other doctors said. Classic. Can't find anything wrong with you. Done lots of tests, but they've all come back negative. Problem solved. Pardon? What does the patient think about that? Well, if I was a patient, various things. You're daft, doctor. You've done the wrong tests. <laughs> I'm ill. Your tests are normal. So you haven't done the right ones, have you? Also, if that's all you think it's about, then what are you going to do about my symptoms, which won't go away in spite of your normal tests? You know, I mean, if you actually think about the effect of words that you're saying on patients, I'm sure your palpitations are nothing to worry about, but I'll I just send you to the hospital for a checkup in about three months' time. So, okay, so they might be all right, but they might not be all right. And it's by heart. And actually, that's three months ahead. That sounds a long time if your heart's going to stop, meanwhile. <laughs> I think it's best for you to have a, an artificial aortic valve put in. It's a common operation. <laughs> it may be common for you. <laughs> it's not terribly common for me. <laughs> I think that means stopping my heart, opening my chest, putting me on a cardiac bypass machine, being on ITU for ages and killing off half my neurons, never mind my heart getting better. We see it from our perspective. Compassion takes us to their perspective. So if you've been a patient, you'll know what it's like to be a patient. There you are. Can you see the faces of the two people, the doctor and the patient? We should be able 
to switch places in our thinking. That's what Jesus did. He put himself in our place. Now that is startling. That is the Lord of the universe putting himself in our place. And I think our calling as health professionals is to put ourselves in the, pace of, in the place of the patient as far as we possibly can, with his help, to see what it is they are suffering, so that compassion, suffering with, is lived out in how we deal with them. Patients want to be human. That sounds daft, but it's an acronym, as you can see. These were just five things I thought of that I think are true of patients. They want to be heard. They want to be heard, not just, you know, I can hear the words, thanks. Actually understood. Listened to and understood. They want to understand themselves. They want to know the meaning of their experience. And they want to be able to ask without you saying or implying, you're stupid. And they want a truthful answer. I think most people really do want a truthful answer. And I'm conscious that some cultures won't allow that to happen if the answer is cancer and you want to tell it to the patient. But as far as you can, I think people want truth. They want authenticity. They don't want a performance, thank you very much. Compassion is real, not the rule book of how to behave. And they want to be nurtured. They actually probably want to be hugged, but we don't do that. But they do want comfort in whatever suffering it is and understanding. Look at good role models. Good role models. Here's a scratchy old photograph from 1969. This is when I first went to see Keith Waddle, who's there examining a patient in a mission hospital in Kagando in uh, West Africa, East Africa. And uh, he came from the UK and South Africa and he lives in a one-room hut in Africa. He did then, he does now. This is 40 years later. He's still there. He's qualified as an eye surgeon now. He's got an MD after doing research on um, retinoblastoma in children. He's a terribly, terribly bright guy and accused me quite appropriately that I didn't know anything, did I, when we were talking one day. And He's really, I mean, he does have a magnificently big brain. It's fantastic. But he's still there. 40 years later, he's celebrating 50 years of being there altogether. Because it was me who went in 69. Still doing the same thing. Still living in one hut. Still sponsoring students and people to go to university um, with donations and money that he earns. And he's never wanted anything else but to treat those patients. And then, of course, look hard and reflect on the Lord. Well... Of course. But of course. And that means of course. Because actually it's still hard when things are busy. But practicing God's presence as we work is key, I think, to maintaining the input into us of the compassion we want to show. Then the final slide, I think I've got 30 seconds. Um, The final slide is the ABC of the Christian in a consultation. Again, this is just a little mnemonic that I made up on the back of an envelope. Um, But it's about what I think, having reflected on consultations for a while, acknowledge that Jesus is there, actually, in the consultation. It's you and he who are both there. Hard when the mind is full of stuff, but it's releasing and and, uh, empowering. And he will guide you. I don't know, I'm sure you will have had this experience. When somehow a question pops in your mind to ask a patient... And that turns out to be the key 
to what it was that is really troubling them. You know, it's not cardiovascular disease. It's actually the fact that they lost their son two years ago and they've never got over it. And just a question might elucidate that. He will guide us. We pray for that. He answers our prayers. We've talked about connecting with a patient with your undivided attention, compassion in every move, and expect promptings by the Holy Spirit to say things and to do things which will help you in that clinical setting. The opening approaches, uh, which maybe Walt Naramar uh, and also Saline Solution have, uh, have very helpfully educated us to, uh, to include uh, in our consultations. And something which always, always uh, rings lots of bells of uh, benefit to people is humility. Actually, because we are allegedly an arrogant lot, um, humility amongst healthcare professions is noticeable and wonderful to behold. Do you know, even in Roman times, going back to Jerusalem, doctors had a low esteem. And do you know why? Because they favoured rich people because they could pay them more. And I think yourselves, going to impoverished places, are a beautiful example of that humility and something which shines as a light borrowed, taken from God into the world. So I wish you well in that. We're over time. I'm happy to answer questions. And what I'm going to do is something slightly unusual, and that is I'm going to play a little bit of reflective music as you disappear. Thank you for listening.